In this episode of 9 to I Talks, Emmy-nominated Billy Porter and Ryan Murphy, co-creator of Pose on FX, discuss how the series came to be and why it's shaping into a classic tale for our times. The conversation was recorded on August 13th, 2019, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. How are you tonight? How are you doing? I'm trying to make sure my scarf isn't blocking my mic. Um, Thank you. I almost wore that. <laughs> He's uh, always trying to steal my clothes. And I never can. <laughs> so I'm here tonight to celebrate my, I can't see a damn thing. I'm here to celebrate my good friend, Billy Porter. There you go. Ask him it shall be given. Turn him up a little bit more. Turn up the lights a little bit more. <laughs> Talk about the light. <laughs> so, um, we have an amazing story to tell. And um, I'll start by saying this. So, two years ago this week, Billy Porter came, I was in New York, and he came into a room to audition for a part that did not exist. Um, there was no pray tell on the page. I had known about Billy's work for a long time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I kept saying to our casting director, who's so brilliant, Alexa Focal, we've got to find a way to get Billy Porter on the show. Um, and there was no real part that was right for him. So there was, a, there was a role that was called the MC that had two lines in the pilot. So I said to my fellow writers, Stephen Canals and, and Brad Felchuk, I said, just, I'm gonna have Billy come in and you're gonna see what I know and then we're gonna talk. And they said, okay. So I'll get back to that moment in a minute. But from that moment, two years ago this week, to what Billy Porter has become in the world, which in my opinion is one of the biggest cultural forces of change that we've seen in a long time. Um, he is so beloved and so celebrated and every magazine wants him and he's nominated for awards and Taylor Swift is calling late at night to tell him he's changing the world, which has actually happened. Um, so Billy, I wanna start by talking with you about this evolution for you. You know, when you had done a lot, you had been in the game a long time. You have a Tony Award for Kinky Boots, you have a Grammy Award for Kinky Boots. So you showed up with authority, you had done the work. Um, which is why when we were shooting the first season of Pose, the long story short is that Brad and Steven, after Billy left the room with that audition, were like, holy shit. So we created this role of pray tell for him, just based on what he did, and all he did was come in and he talked for 20 minutes about how mad he was about Trump and the world and things that were happening. So Got me wound up! He knows what questions to ask. I do. So he was, which I wanted him to do because this part was, I, I just knew that I wanted to lean into what Billy's strength was as a person, as an actor. So several weeks into the shooting of the show, which is a very difficult shoot, show to shoot with a lot of moving pieces, I called up Billy about a, a scene we were doing, I think in episode three. It was very early on in season one. And I said, as the leading man of the show, I think you should bubble. And he goes, what, what are you talking about? I said, you're the leading man of this show. And if you're gonna be that, I want you to think about this. And he said, that's not true. I'm a supporting character. And I said, no, you're motherfucking not. <laughs> you are the male lead of this show. This storyline revolves around you being the male lead of this show. And that for you, Billy, was um, a breakthrough moment, I think, in terms of your performance. So can you talk about that and why, why did you say that? Why did you feel that? Well, you know, I came out in the 80s. I was in drama school at Carnegie Mellon in 87. Um, you know, while they were casting me as Romeo, while they had an idea that I might possibly grow up to be a leading man, I was the queen going, for who? 
where is that going to happen? Because the archetypes that I see don't look like me. They are James Earl Jones, who's the patriarch, the black patriarch. There is Denzel Washington, who is the sex symbol. And there's Eddie Murphy, who's the genius clown. They are all straight, some of them violently straight. So, <laughs> I'm gonna stay over here. I'm gonna sing as high as I can and as loud as I can for as long as I can and get myself a job so I can eat. You know, I abandoned all ideas of, um, that of being a leading man because all we saw what was what was traditional. Um, I am not traditional, so I couldn't see it. And for 30 years, I have um, sort of navigated a career based on um, my own doubts, um, my own um, uncomfortableness surrounding um, being in the front as a leading man like that. Um, you know, 30 years I've been in this business and the first time that I've ever been the object of anyone's affection in anything was last season in episode eight. I kissed somebody for the first time in my career at all. It's like, you just get used to it. You just get used to being the funny friend. You get used to the industry cutting your dick off because you're a queen and they don't want to see it and they don't want to hear it, yet that's all they want to talk about. You know, that's the thing that is, is the motivation for the oppression is what we're doing in our bedrooms. Get out of my bedroom, you'll be fine. But simultaneously, when we have these moments where we can create a space that shows African-American men trying to figure out how to love each other as opposed to trying to kill each other. You know, those stories get greenlit all the time. And I am so grateful to be a part of what I see as a change, as a change in the narrative, as a, a reclamation of our power or claiming our power for the first time, I don't know. Whatever it is, I'm a part of it and I feel, and I'm thrilled. So to go, to go from that moment in that phone call that we had where you, you finally felt, I think, looking back at it, seen. Yes, um, yes. And Billy and I talk, have talked about this before, but when I was directing, uh, the pilot in the second episode, um, there was a moment where I approached Billy to direct him in a very specific way, and I said, what? <laughs> um, so we were doing the ball scenes, um, a ball scene, and I, um, you know, had been told so often that the reason why I wasn't booking in film and television was because I was too flamboyant or too big or too much, it was always my fault. I was too, 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 too something. Um, and so I came into this space, you know, thinking that I needed to tone myself down and make myself presentable for television and for Ryan Murphy. So I was doing my television version, what I thought was my television version of uh, Pray Tell at the Balls. And he, <laughs> he cut, he comes in and he's like, um, are you gonna give me the shit? <laughs> don't you worry about it. I'll take care of whatever that is. You don't you worry about that. I need everything that you are and all the things that you do right now. Action. And it's like, it's so freeing. You know, when you have been in chains and when you've been in bondage simply because of um, who you are, it's not acceptable. Um, you know, but as the wise Maya Angelou said, we teach people how to treat us. So until I treat myself right, until I honor myself, nobody else knows how to do that. And that's a long journey. That's a really interesting, that's an interesting journey because when you get messaging and the only messaging that you get is that something's wrong with you, you're an abomination, Nobody wants you. 
Nobody will ever want you. You faggot you. No matter how strong you are, those messages get in. And we very often unconsciously, no matter how strong we are, uh, make decisions based on that unconscious energy that's flowing in our bodies. So you gotta vomit that up. Like James Baldwin said, it took me years and years to vomit up the shit that people told me about myself. And I halfway believed before I could find the courage to walk on this earth as if I had the business to be here. It's, you know, it's breathtaking. You know, it takes my breath away. Mm. I feel the same way because when I first started off in television, it was 1998. The first thing I ever did was this show called Popular on the WB. And, and um, I was told, you can't have a gay character. You can't talk about gay things. I couldn't even have a cheerleader wear a, a fur coat because it was too gay. So I fought back and I have fought and fought and fought and fought and fought. And around 2009, 2010, you know, the fighting became less, and I look at Billy's career, and, and I feel, um, you know, your ascension is one of the things that I'm the most proud of, because, you know, we've only gotten love and support from our network, from our studio. There's never been a note. They're always saying, do it more. We want more, 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 more. And I was talking about that sex scene that aired two, two weeks ago. They wanted more of that. I couldn't believe it. And Neither could I. And <laughs> so to go from, for, for me, to go from that, and, I, and Billy and I are, are in a similar generation, to where Billy is the first out gay actor nominated for Best Drama Actor in the history of the Emmy Awards is an amazing thing. Yeah. And when I read that, that statistic was released, you know, the day the nominations came out, I had to read it twice. I couldn't believe that that was true. I couldn't either. So you continue to be um, a person who's the first, the first, which is an amazing thing. And let's talk about that sex scene a little bit. That, that yes, baby. Recently. Um, I'll tell you a funny story that you don't know. What? Okay, so now when you do anything, <laughs> when, you, when you do anything sexualized on television or in movies, um, you hire people who are called intimacy coordinators. Yes, intimacy coordinators. Which I really wish I had in the dating scene <laughs> back in the day. So what this person does is they look and they, they walk in and they say, are you comfortable? Are you comfortable? There's a lot of talking. And there's How a lot far of do you want to go? Do you want to use tongue or not? You know, yeah. shit like that. So, so when we were shooting Billy's scene, which is sort of a first, I think, for network television in, in its realness and its boldness and its beauty, um, at one point, the intimacy coordinator was very quiet. And um, the, a producer walked up to her and said, are you okay? And she burst out into tears. And she said, I cannot believe for the first time that I'm seeing these images. Mm. It was so beautiful, and you did that, so congratulations. Thank you. He was nervous. <laughs> and the other thing that's so powerful, I think, about what we do, I feel this about myself, but you know, pe young people will see you and the work that you've done. And, and you know, Billy has had a, not an easiest road. There were many times when, when he was in Hollywood starting out where you slept on couches. Yep. And you could not get auditions, and you did not know where you know your next meal was going to come from. Nope, not always. What yeah. was that like? Well, you know, the first ten years of my career were like gangbusters. You know, I came I came out of Carnegie Mellon, second semester of my senior year. I was cast in the original cast of Miss Saigon. I was doing a bunch of Broadway. I had a recording contract on A and M Records. Um, you know, I was chugging away, I was chugging away. And towards the end of the decade, it sort of started probably around 96, when my album, you know, the, the, record, the record business is, is, is the thing that almost killed me. Because my voice, my singing voice was the thing that always saved me 
It always lifted me out of my circumstance and let me hover in a safer space until I could find my way back and then I could dip back into real life. So this was the first time that my voice, that my gayness overshadowed my voice. They didn't want me, they kicked me out. They, it was like, get out of here, get out of here. I moved to Los Angeles, I had done a couple of movies. I thought I'm gonna go to Los Angeles, I'm gonna be me. And I sat there for two and a half years. Um, I maybe had four auditions. In two and a half years you had four auditions? I maybe had four auditions, I can count may maybe five. Um, you know, I... As the sidekick, I'm guessing. As the sidekick. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I just didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. And I did this um, workbook called The Artist's Way. I don't know if you have ever heard, that, heard of that book, yeah. And you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a chapter in there where she talks about, and I, I'm paraphrasing and whatever, but she, she talks about, um, you know, just make a list of, excuse me, the people, the kinds of people you admire and reasons why you admire them. But like, don't write down what you think you should based on what you're doing. Write down the first thing that comes to your head. And I did, and the list was really strange because I thought it would be like, I wanna be Whitney Houston, I wanna be Michael Jackson, I wanna be, and it wasn't, it was like, Quincy Jones and Denzel Washington and, you know, Spike Lee and Oprah Winfrey and, you know, Stephen Bochco and John Wells and, you know, Steven Spielberg. And it was like, wait, 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 hold up. This doesn't have anything to do with what I'm doing right now because these people are visionaries. These people are moguls, and I can't get an audition for a role on a show with five lines. I can't even get an audition. Like, how am I gonna get to that? But the moment that I spoke it, you know, we speak what we are. We speak into existence what we need and what we want. If you say you can't, you won't. If you say you, you know, if you say I, I can't, you won't. I mean, it's just, it's just, I'm living proof that we speak who we are. And I called this up, you know, because I was in this business and I was frustrated and I couldn't get any headway in the film and television part of it, even after the Tony and the Grammy, which is when eyes are on you, you know, and I was very, 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 very frustrated with it. And, um, you know, all of a sudden, after years and years of calling this man out, you know, because I put him on my vision board. I looked at the <laughs> landscape and I was like, well, Ryan Murphy's the only bitch that's gonna understand me. <laughs> Cause he got Jessica Lang, you know, he got all the divas. So he understands how to deal with divas. He, know how, he knows how to write for us. He knows what our strengths are, you know, like all of those things. So I, so I start, you know, I, I thought I'm just going to put him on my vision board. I started writing him in my journal. I started talking about it to people. I want to work with Ryan Murphy. I want to work with Ryan Murphy. And all of a sudden I get the telephone call and it's like, Ryan's doing a show about the ball culture. And this was the day I had a nervous breakdown with my sister on the phone. She said right it there. was during pilot season. It was during pilot season. I had a nervous breakdown with her. I was like, I can't do it. I won't do it. I won't do it. You know, pulled the car over to the side of the road and everything. Um, and then I got this call and I just thought, oh my God, this is it. This is what I asked for. Like, whatever it is. And they had called me in for the wrong part and I knew it even then. I was like, that's not the part, but this is it. Mm. It's so funny hearing you say that because um, I don't have a vision board. 
<laughs> I wish I did. I'm going to start one. But I believe that you manifest things yeah. in your life, you know. And one of the things that I have loved about my very bizarre, strange career where I've been so blessed is that I have somehow figured out recently what my, what, why, am I, why am I here? And the answer to that is because I think I am here and to, to manifest a feeling that I have had since I was born where I never felt that I fit in, no matter how successful I've been, no matter what I've won, no matter anything, I have never felt that I belonged. And I think that the reason how I feel I belong is when I take in my shows people, individuals who are marginalized, who are on the outskirts and make them the story. Yes. Make them the mainstream. Yes, and I that's why out, I wrote them down, because I saw that. <laughs> but you say that about me, and I remember when we were casting, I kept coming back to your name, and I, I didn't know why, other than I think you're one of the most talented people I've ever seen perform, but I realize it now, after all of this time, was that I was looking for a teacher, and you have become that to me, and I'll tell you why. I was looking for a teacher. I was looking for someone brave to show me the way about things that I have struggled with, and this is the perfect story. So we're working, and Billy had not yet become, you know, Anna Wintour's best friend yet. <laughs> and he um, said, you know, I got this offer for this job and I think I'm going to take it. I'm like, what, what, what are you talking about? And he said, they asked me to go on to the Oscars and to, you know, talk to people on the red carpet. And I said, well, that could be fun. You know, that, that could be fun. I really didn't know what it was going to be. And he said, I'm going to wear this. And he clicked on his phone and he showed me a picture of him in a ball gown. And I remember thinking two things. You're never going to be brave enough to wear that and I want to wear that. <laughs> and, and I remember thinking, wow, if, if he does this, maybe you can wear it. Maybe you won't be gay bashed walking down the street. You know, Maybe you can be, show a side of you that you feel uncomfortable to see, which was a very moving moment for me. I was always constantly afraid and in the shadows. And I think, in, we're, so we're going to jump towards this cultural phenomenon that Billy Porter has become, where he really has changed culture. And you can see it this fall with all the designers being inspired by him. And I think so many young people are, have permission to express who they are because of that moment, which was a risk with what you did. So. Talk about that, the ball gown moment that has just been, it's only been less than six months but, months, but the effect of that and what you've done along with your work has been seismic, I think, in the culture. Well, that part of it, the seismic part of it is a bit of a surprise to me. You know, it was really simple, you know, for me in terms of how it, of how it came to be. You know, I was watching... I was trying to get my business sense together, right? So I've been looking at things from, well, how, do I, how I'm a business and how do I market myself and how do I brand myself? And so I was watching the Oscars with a bunch of friends and it was the year Adina Menzel had Frozen and she's a friend of mine, she's a good friend of mine and, you know, uh, John Travolta said her name wrong. <laughs> And I remember looking at the screen and going, oh my God, she just became a superstar. Everyone in the world will be saying her name. Everybody will know her name. Because he said it wrong at the Super Bowl of the arts, where every eye was watching it. I need somebody to say my name wrong on the Oscars. <laughs> So you log that in the back of my brain, right? So then you fast forward to this award season. I don't, there's nothing inside of me that thinks anything about an Oscar is gonna happen. Like, I'm not, it's, I'm not thinking about that in any way. So I get this telephone call. It's during fashion week. And I'm going, well, you know, I used to always say 
with my girlfriends when we were watching the Oscars. Oh, I'm going to just wear a gown. Fuck it, I'm going to wear a gown. I know it's going, you know, but I'm just going to do it. You know, the boys are always so boring. They only get to wear tuxes. They don't ever get to play. And I want to wear a gown, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> really sort of kind of joking, right? And then this call came in, and as I was watching the Christian Siriano show, I realized, oh my God, I have to wear a ball gown. Like, I have to wear a This is the moment. That's my, that's my Adina Menzel, he said my name wrong moment. Mm. You know, th there was intention behind it. Make no mistake, there was intention behind it. I knew that there would be eyes on me and I knew that being in that garment would create a conversation. I knew that. I didn't know it was gonna be this, but mm -hmm. I did know that it would create a conversation. Um, and so I went to the party, the after party with Christian. We were dancing on the dance floor and I was like, okay, bitch, look. <laughs> I'm going to the Oscars. I'm gonna be interviewing people on the red carpet. And bitch, I want you to make me a ball gown. And he just went, ah! <laughs> what? He said, yes, yes, yes. I was like, we only have two weeks. He's like, I don't care, I don't care. Have, your, have, have Sam call me, my stylist. Have Sam call me on Monday. We doing this, we doing this, we doing this. And that's how it happened. Mm -hmm. You know, it was really sort of organic. You know, my thought was, I didn't know how it, how it would work, but I thought, oh, you know, if they start on, you know, if they do a, a, a cut here, you know, it would look like I was in a tux and then they could pull out and I'll slay the kids. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, now I'm gonna tell, you know, I'm gonna tell a little story about this one because right before all of this, you know, we had a little lunch. He mapped out what, you know, he mapped out what his plans were for me. We had great conversations. And one of the things he said was, I'm gonna need you to sit on your throne. And I was like, okay. And so he texted me that night yeah, when it started it going. I was like, you broke the interwebs. And I said, <laughs> I said, bitch, you told me to sit on my throne. You ain't got to ask me twice. <laughs> <laughs> so since we're on this topic of fashion, so then the next thing we know, we get invited to the Met, the Met Gala. Um, and who stole the show there? Billy Porter. <laughs> um, you know, when they're very, very, very strict at the Met Gala, I went as Liberace. I asked you to have a pink poodle as a prop. They said no, um, which I totally get because it's chaos. But Billy asked to be carried in on a throne. I didn't ask. My stylist asked. And it was the quickest yes in the history of the Met Gala. <laughs> so what was that like? To, to, I remember seeing you that night, you know, and it's a very out of body experience, but you were the person that everybody in that room wanted to come up to and either, either say thank you or how amazing for you or can we go to lunch? Like you had just become, like I said, a cultural thing. What was that like for you? You know, it's really, that question comes up a lot. What does it feel like? What is it like? It's a really hard question to answer. You know, because you have to be present. You have to be grounded. And you have to be prepared to continue the work, which is the reason why all of this shit is happening in the first place. Mm -hmm. So if you get caught up in the feeling of how it feels, then everything else around you crumbles and suffers. Mm -hmm. Right? So I have not stopped. Literally from the Golden Globes to today. I'm directing a play in Boston. I got on a plane. I was in rehearsal at 7.30 this morning, and I got on a plane at 2.30, and I'm here, and I go back tomorrow morning to go back to rehearsal. Like the, and I only say that because that's what the work is. That's what's required of me. So the feeling is grateful. Mm -hmm. The feeling is amazing. The feeling is thank you, Jesus, and let's keep it moving. 
you know, because I got to go to work. Yeah. You know, so it's a, it's a, it's interesting because I don't know. It, it sometimes it feels like there's an expectation of like, oh, I, you know, it's like skipping through the poppy fields and the, you know, like I don't know. It's, you know, it's it's out of body, really. It's out of body. I don't feel like my husband just said. To, my husband just said to me today. It's like, you know, I showed him a picture of, you know, our um, our stuff on a billboard on, in Hollywood Boulevard. I said somebody sent this to me. He said, when are you gonna, when are you gonna re get used to the fact that you're on billboard? Like, what? Mm. You're you act surprised that you're on a billboard. It's like, well, it's not surprise. It's just like. It's gratitude. It's gratitude. It's like, wow. I mean, like, this is where I always wanted to be. This is what I always wanted to do. And don't mistake, you know, the, the naivete of being young and wanting to be a star was replaced with intention. It was replaced with, how can I be of service? Mm -hmm. I got that shit from Oprah and Maya Angelou too. How can I be of service? You know, so then, when I started living my life inside of that kind of intention, to then have this happen as a result, it's like, oh right, that's what they said would happen. Mm -hmm. This is what they said would happen. This is what the people who do this said would happen. And you also, you know, it's not just been a journey, it's been a life. I mean, the amazing thing about you that I think is so Overwhelming is you know you're gonna turn 50 I think the night before the Emmy Awards. Yes, I am. I'll be 50 September 21st. There you go. So I mean, that that must feel something got figured out. Yeah, I think you know what I know is that there is a calling on my life. I know it sounds ooga booga, but I'm a very spiritual person. There has always been a calling. I've always felt like I was here for a reason. Mm -hmm. You know, I always felt like this authenticity person is the ministry. You know, talking church talk. Those of us who've been in a church, you know, the, it, the way we talk about intention, the way we talk about sort of um, making our mark or being of service, you know, it's a very, very spiritual thing and I do not take it for, for, for granted. You know, and so being 50, I could not have, I could not be standing here, sitting here with you as present and as available as I am, had I not gone through all that other stuff to sure. get here. Yeah. You know, all that stuff that was so frustrating and boring and, you know, tiring and whatever, crazy making, prepared me for this moment right now. You know, because I don't know how people do it who don't have 50 years of life experience behind them. That's why everybody goes crazy. <laughs> it's insane the, how it comes at you. It yeah. just, it comes at you and it's like, you know, you must be in a space where you can stand flat-footed and breathe and open up your arms and be available for what you're here for. Right, which, you leads, know. which leads me to, you know, I was talking about Pose, which has been such an amazing thing. You know, when we first, Stephen and Brad and I, when we first sold that show, um, everybody was very, very supportive, but I think that there was a, a, an idea like, okay, well, it's gonna be small and it's gonna be niche and that's what LGBTQ stuff is and just be prepared. And I always said, that's not true. I always knew that, that it would, touch a chord because in my life, in my writing, in my work, in my directing, what I think is the more specific you are, yes. the more universal you Absolutely. become. So Absolutely. Why, why do you feel like our show keeps growing and building? And talk about that. What's, what, do you, what are you hearing? What's your vibe and why people are so moved by it? Well, the first thing I know for sure is that it's about family. Mm -hmm. It's a family drama. The world needs to see what unconventional families look like. They need to understand, yes, they need to understand that family is not simply blood. It's not simply blood. You know, that is, that's the family you were born into. That's your blood. But when the definition of family means support, when the definition of family means 
your, your base, your grounding, your life, the people who you go to on the day to day, very often for, for those of us gay folks, those are people we choose. And so our show is about family, chosen family, and that's just as important, if not more important mm -hmm. than blood. That's the first thing. The second thing is the obvious part of the, you know, largest LGBTQ, transgender cast, blah, 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 people of color. Yes, 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 yes. All of that stuff. So, that, so that's another component. The history making aspect. The history making of the aspect of the show. So I know that people are really um, in touch with that. And then, you know, the aspirational. What I love about, you know, how you guys have, have, have created the show is that it's not AIDS porn. It's not LGBTQ porn, you know, uh, 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 sadness porn. It's, it's aspirational. It's about a group of people who choose life in the face of the darkest and most desolate of circumstances. They choose life anyway. And so can you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's... Yeah. So my last, my last question before we, we um, take some questions from the audience is, you know, we've always talked about the arc of Pose being about sort of that period um, dealing with the HIV and the AIDS crisis, and we know that the show will end in 1996, the year 1996. So what, what do you wish the most for, for Pray Tell? What do you want to happen to him the most? Well, I would love for Pray Tell to find love and be able to hold on to it. I think one of the things that those of us who grew up in that era have is, you know, we have PTSD. Mm. You know, we know how to fight, but we don't know how to live. And the people who were supposed to teach us how to do that died in a plague. So like I found my, you know, it's not, it's not surprising to me that I, you know, finally got married two and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, I finally got to a place where I can actually have a relationship with somebody because we didn't understand how to do that. You know, so I would love to show that trajectory. I would love to sort of have a narrative that speaks to that, especially in that time too. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, I would love to be able, for, for Pray Tell to be able to crack open the conversation between the LGBTQ community and the black church. You know, it's like, we're not having it. Um, it's the same thing. You know, somebody just called my mother the other day, last week, talking about, oh, I'm so sorry. It must be so hard that your son is gay. Still, today, that was last week. That's what we're still dealing with. That's the shit we're still dealing with. As when I say it comes at you like this, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, you've gotta be kidding me. You know, with all, of the, with all of the things that are happening in this world, that's still the thing. And what did she say? She said, don't worry about me. Get off my phone. My son, my son is fine. She's like, you're ridiculous. She, you know, and my mom has come a mighty long way. You know, but we're placed in their lives for a reason. That's the point. It's the very thing that you hate is the shit that's gonna be placed right in front of you for you to deal with. I know. I feel that with my six-year-old who's really into football. <laughs> I'm like, Jesus Christ, really? Sure. Can we talk about jewelry? No. No. Um, well, it sounds like we have season three all figured out. You know what we're going to write about. Um, I'm supposed we need to some gospel music. I'm supposed Pray to Town needs to sing with a choir. Yes, we do. That would be good. Thank you very much. Um, all right, we have some questions. Mm. We have many questions here. Uh, Billy, what were you doing when you found out you received an Emmy nomination this year as the first openly, openly gay man from Reggie? What was I doing? I was vacationing in uh, P-Town. 
it was bear week. <laughs> Me and my husband was there um, enjoying the bears. Um, <laughs> um, and I was, we were gonna have some people over for lunch and so I was um, marinating some chicken. And I had the phone right on the counter, you know, and I thought, okay, and I turned it over and I was like, all right, if it starts buzzing, Something's that's good. a good thing. But then I started thinking, but if it, it could be buzzing because people are calling with sympathies. <laughs> you know, it's weird because I don't really, I don't really live in that space until right before the space. We were out on Monday night, because I, I had totally forgotten, and we were out on Monday night um, the night before, and I turned to my husband, and I was like, oh shit, those Emmy nominations come out tomorrow morning! <laughs> he was like, all right, let's just go out. Let's just go out and dance it off. So they so, said your name and you felt? I didn't, I didn't, I don't watch it. Okay, so you got Somebody the, you called heard, me. And they said you're Annie. And, and I said, felt... praise the Lord. <laughs> Thank you, that part is over. Yeah. Now I can marinate my chicken okay. and grill it good. <laughs> And go back to the and have bears. a good day. Have some cocktails. Yes. Well, the thing I love about you is that you you really do celebrate it, and you take none of it for granted. No, which not is at an all. amazing not gift. at all. Not with no. Uh, this is a question to both of us. It says, "Pose gives a spotlight to LGBTQ youth in the '80s. What advice would you give to a gay twenty-something-year-old living in New York City in today's New York?" Anthony, twenty-five. My advice is date everybody. That's my advice, truly. The thing that I would say that I felt is that I was so hard on myself and I thought that I had, I had to have it all figured out. Like, you know, I thought I had to figure out, know who I was and know who I was gonna hopefully be with. And um, I didn't have a lot of fun and I had a lot of worry. And I actually didn't sell my first screenplay until I was 32 years old. So if, I wish I had been more exploratory, that I had been more kind, that I had been more open to experiences instead of, you know, I think there's so much rigidity with young people because, you know, you see it with the Instagram culture, all the things that you're not having. I wish I would have enjoyed my skin tone a lot better. Mm. And that idea that you, that period of your life is about, I think, and I think you and I both know this, is about exploring yeah. and, and, and being kind to yourself. And, yes. and it's okay to fail. It's okay yes. to try. You know, what, what about for you? Um, I would say something that's very sim similar to that, which is just jump off the ledge. Just jump off the ledge. You know, there's no better time than the present. Nobody's gonna give you anything. Fight for it, jump off the ledge, fight for it, and speak life into yourself. And find a group of like-minded like yes. people that can be your find community. Find your family. Yeah, yeah. find your family. Um, another question for both of us. Is there a person or event that gave you the confidence, strength, and courage that what you wanted to do was right and you went for it? Was there a moment that gave you that moment, Billy? A person that gave you that moment? I would say that it happened around the sixth grade. I went to Risenstein Middle School. I was bused there. There were after-school programs still before they took them all away. Um, and there was an after-school program called Risenstein Musical Theater, and I didn't know what a musical was, but they explained to us what it was. I auditioned. The production was Babes in Arms, Rogers and Hart's Babes in Arms. There were like 100 people in the show. It was like, it literally was like Glee. <laughs> it was totally like Glee. And everybody wanted to be in the show, and I didn't know what this was. And every single solitary role was double cast, supposed to be double cast. And when the sign went up, every role was double cast except me. And for the first time in my life, I was like, I'm not the last one picked. Mm. This feels like the first one picked to me. 
You know, it was just like, wait. Because I knew I could sing. I was singing in church. It was like, oh, oh, so this, you know, this is the golden ticket right here. Mm -hmm. If I can keep doing this and hone this, then I can get the fuck out of here. (laughs) I would say for me, it was probably when I was a similar age, maybe a little younger, and it was my grandmother, and I came from a big group of Irish Catholics. There were a lot of us cousins. And I was um, the only gay child. I was the only quiet child. I was the only non-athletic child. And it, when I was very close with my grandmother. And at one point, she pulled me aside and she said, I just want to tell you something. And I said, what? And she said, you're different, and that's why you're the most special out of all of these kids to me. And she said, so let me tell you something. What are three things that you're interested in, and you and I are going to do those things? And I said, really? And she said, yes, what are they? And I said, Dracula, Barbra Streisand, and skincare. And my grandmother said, I get it. And she put me in a car and we went to a drugstore and she bought me my own jar of Noxzema. <laughs> and we went to see Barbara Streisand and Funny Lady. Oh and from that moment God. on, I was like, maybe there is a way for me to be me and not be ashamed. Yeah. Very powerful. Yes, very much so. And there's a second part of this question, which is for you, Billy, which is at the balls. Are your lines mostly scripted or improv? All right. So our writers are fucking brilliant. And they write it out. Like, I start with a really, really, really strong base. And then we see, then the next component is the staging of the scene where you actually see the people and you see the the costumes that they're talking about in the script. So things shift a little bit around in that moment. And then, they start shooting and they shoot away from me first. And I'm so glad that we fell into that because I was doing kinky boots when we were filming the pilot and they had to shoot me out by three, three or four every day. So what would happen is they would clear the room and then I would do all of my, my stuff without the room there so they could get it on camera. And it turned out to be a really, really great, great way of doing it. And, you know, cutting time off of the day. And, and for me, being able to focus and, and, you know, craft a character. So the first day we came in, the first day we started, you know, I was, I was prepared. <laughs> I'm Shakespeare trained. I knew all my lines. I knew them for, verbatim. And um, this one is like, okay, so I'm gonna need you to ad lib. And you know, I don't consider myself a Saturday Night Live kind of thing. Like I'm not a, you know, I'm not, I don't consider myself that. Once again, I will jump off the ledge, but like that, I didn't, I don't think that that's one of my strengths. And so they have a, so the script is there and then they have a consultant, Jack Mizrahi, who is an actual MC. So he'll come in and look at everybody and he'll write down, some ideas, he'll scrawl out some, some ideas. And so I have my little podium and I have everything there. And then once we're, once we're in the rhythm of it and we do a lot of shooting and, and we find the rhythm and I start to find what it is, then they turn the camera around on me. And by that point, I have really- um, Worked it out. Put the pieces together. Yeah. You know, like, most of my ad libs come inside of the transitions from one thing to another. I transition in the ideas. And so a lot of what I find, I didn't think they were gonna, you know, and then you start watching it. It's like, no, every single thing I say is up in that bitch. <laughs> every single, everything I say, they use all my ad libs. I guess my ad libs are all right. Yeah, they're good. <laughs> they're always good. So question, Billy, at what point in your career did you, um, Think to yourself, I'm a star, I've made it. Um, I don't really think like that. <laughs> I really don't think like that, but right now I think I've made it. <laughs> Thank 
and you know, that doesn't mean that it ends. That doesn't mean that it ends. But you know, the, the story about, you know, last year he, 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 Ryan called me and, you know, we went to dinner and he said, okay, so I'm gonna need you to lean in to the joy. Um, you know, I know it's been hard, but you ain't got to worry about none of that no more. I got you. Mm -hmm. So, I have arrived. Um, this is a question for me, um, which was, was it hard to sell Pose to FX? Um, no. Um, I'm at a point in my career where I can kind of say, I would like to do X, and people will, for the most part, listen. That's what I want. <laughs> but when I was younger, you know, I, um, had this idea that I would march in and say I'm gonna do this, and, and I struggled with that for the beginning of my career, um, which is something I tell young people. I was always adamant about having the last word and fighting and fighting and fighting. And things shifted for me when I would say my passion and then say, and what do you think? And let people feel that they are a part of something. So in the case of Pose, I didn't go in, and even though it's in my contract and you know, I get final cut and all that stuff, which I don't believe in, um, because I like notes and I like input and I like feedback because I want people to, who are working on it to feel that they have ownership in it too. And I think I learned that. So what I did with, with this show is I went in and I talked about why I was interested in it. And I talked about the themes and I talked about the feelings of being marginalized, and I talked about having um, gone through the HIV crisis as a young person, and how I would drive to the hospital and be tested every two weeks, and really understanding what that was about. And then I asked the executives to talk about what do you like about this idea. So together we crafted it, and um, that's how it happened. And it was it was a remarkable thing, and the thing that I was adamant about adamant about when I sold it, which was okay, if we're gonna make this show, and this show is on a mainstream network, we're not gonna spend $1.99 on the advertisements and the posters. Because so many times, in my experience, what I've found is when you make quote unquote LGBTQ content, the content they say okay, and they pat you on the head, and they like to put it out in the world, but they won't support it. And I said, I'm gonna make this only if you give it the advertising budget you gave OJ. And they said they would, and they did. And that, to me, was where I was like, okay, I like, I like this power thing. Yep. <laughs> this feels good. Um, and I think in doing that, you, you, you really say to the world something. This is something to watch. This is yep. something a major corporation believes in, you yep. know? Very different from when we started out. Absolutely. Um, this is the second part of that question, which is also hilarious, which says, how does Bray tell pay his rent? <laughs> well, <laughs> Pray tell is a perfume spritzer at Macy's. That's what the original script was. <laughs> That's what we were working on originally. Um, you know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I will say, this is the thing about this show. We've had, first season was eight episodes, and we're always like, well, let's go to Macy's and show Praytel's spritzing. Unimportant. It's like, okay. It's unimportant. It's, it, it's, it's not. Important. It's interesting. In terms of what I'm interested in doing is showing, is showing it as an arc. And a lot of the first two seasons that we've done have been about I think um, dealing with the crisis, dealing with the ballroom scene, and I think people have noticed as the second season has gone along, you know a little bit about the backstory. So what I have been saving it for is I'm really interested in this idea that Praetel spritzes cologne, and um, is that and and is you know making money and is making money and seeing the balls and is keeping his hand in, but but someone in the spritzing world sees 
how you look and says you should be a designer, pray tell. Yes. So that you get the idea of, I never thought I could do that. I thought I could only be this, but I can actually be that. I'm interested, so we will be doing that. There are glimmers of that in, in season one. Yeah, so we're gonna, we're gonna do that and we're also gonna have pray tell um, go to church. And Billy's gonna be directing, right? That's right. Yes, you are. I just have to remind. You know, this is me reminding. <laughs> you don't have to remind, remind me, Billy. I feel you. Uh, uh, this is for both of us. Um, two more questions. Do you feel that the show was at all inspired by the current state of Trump's America? I can say that I, I, I don't like to talk about Trump too much. Um, there was one point in the first season where we actually had him have a cameo because there was characters who played that they worked in the Trump Organization. It's like, I really don't want to see his face. I just don't want to see it. So we got rid of it. What I, what I am interested in, and I think that you'll agree, what I have an obligation to do is, it's a very, it's a period piece, our show. But, you know, I think we came out of a period of eight years under President Obama where we thought, okay, well that struggle's over now. We got through something, we're good now. And what I feel is we're not, and particularly dealing with our trans storylines, that community is so under fire and having rights taken away left and right. Um, so I feel like we're writing to what's happening currently, yeah. even though it's a period piece. Absolutely. In our way, with, with, and the best thing we can do, I think, on a TV show is, is be um, an eye-opener. If you see someone on television, if that character can be your friend, it creates empathy in the world. Yeah. And I feel like that's what we're trying to do with yeah. Pose. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Frederick Douglass said that. Um, that's what this show is about. Those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. So what we get to do with Pose is remind the world that we fucking win. We win. It may take some time, but we win, love wins. Mm -hmm. We've been through this before, we've seen it before, now it's time to get out in these streets and fight for what we know is right. Mm. That's it. Which leads me to um, our last question for both of us. Um, do you feel that um, pose is a healing thing? Yes, Can you talk definitely. About that? For me, um, you know, just going back to the idea of living through that crisis, right? And then, you know, it was just terror, 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 terror every day, every single day. I see friends in this audience who I went through it with. Every single day was like terror. And then antiviral drugs came and it was over and everybody moved on. You know, and this brings us back to a time that is a bit forgotten. And I had friends call me last year when I, I pray tell was diagnosed and they said, you know, I was a very specific friend and he said, baby, I, I didn't know that I hadn't even mourned because it went away so fast mm -hmm. until I saw that scene and he said I cried for three days. It is so healing because once again, representation. Mm -hmm. We were here. People were here and people died. They laid down their lives. Their lives were taken away from them so that we could be here mm -hmm. doing what we're doing. Um, so it is, it's been very healing for me um, in that way, because to be, as an, as an artist and as an actor, to be a part of that and to be able to sort of show that narrative through the work is really very heal healing, mm -hmm. yes. I feel the same way. I feel like it's, it's the great joy of my career, the show, that um, what, I, what I am amazed by, I'm so proud of, back to, to end our conversation 20 years ago, not being able to have a gay character and, and, you know, 
to go from that to creating this show, having this show so loved and supported by the network FX that has it on there. They put everything into the show. They, yeah, they, they love it, they support it. And then there's another, another level where it's on Netflix and the show is beamed into 100 countries in the world and 175 million people have access to this show. And many of those people who are able to watch this show feel like they are alone, yeah. feel like they don't have a voice, yeah. and they feel unseen. And this show, I think, is healing because it says to those people, we see you, we remember you, we are here for you, you're not alone. And I will conclude by saying, I feel the same way about you, Mr. Porter. <laughs> Did I? I see you and I love you. And I think what you've done these past couple of years is extraordinary. And you really are um, a national treasure. And I'm honored to be here. Love you. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.